This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. This is Emma from Motive Partners, and today I am honored to be joined by Catherine Wines, non-executive director and co-founder of World Remit. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. You have been a guiding light for World Remit, which is a global online money transfer service, and it was also named one of the fastest growing tech companies in the UK. Catherine, tell us about you. What is your story? Who is Catherine Wines? Who so is Catherine Wines? Well, I guess maybe a bit of a personal background. I'm uh, obviously from my accent, you can recognize I'm French by yes, birth. I, but, love, uh, I love I've that. been here 42 years. I came at the age of 20 and never left. And uh, I'm British, not only just by, because of the passport, but also because I can talk about the weather. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is often a very depressing subject. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a background where I was brought up by my mother because my parents were divorced when uh, I was quite young and uh, she had a small uh, grocery shop, you know, where at that time in Paris, uh, where it was very much a small community area, you, you knew everybody, you knew the butcher, the baker, the, the green grocer. And uh, from early days, I was in one of the business in terms of, uh, I used to deliver food and goods to uh, customers <laughs> with my little trolley. <laughs> so, uh, Ocado, I got nothing on, <laughs> on Catherine Wines. <laughs> I love that. So, I've always been, as I said, uh, probably because I was surrounded, I was in the business and then the, the importance of customer, we used to say, you know, customer is king, had an, an impact on, on the way I look at things and my focus and, and, uh, and, and, well and, and, and certainly at World Remit. And, but even anyway, you know, for me, it's been, and being in business, I suppose, is that the independence of being in business. So yes. that's probably, I, even though I was a woman and at that time, you know, not many people went to business. I think that that was a natural thing for me to do. Yes. And we're going to get into that a lot mm-hmm. more or later on. Tell us a bit more about your career for our listeners to have a bit more background. You are a trained accountant and now you are a founder of one of the largest fintech companies. Tell yeah. us about yeah. the well, When I was young, when I came to, to this country, it was clear that, you know, obviously I had to first master the language, although I learned, uh, you know, at, at school, uh, you, you have to improve your English and also, it was to decide you know, what I wanted my career to do, and I was I realized very quickly if I wanted to be in business. I think accountancy did help, and accountancy qualification, especially at this time, was a good way to enter the business market and to have the, the possibility of working in different environments. So, you know, an engineer might be stuck in between engineering type works, whereas an accountant really gives you the possibility to work in different industries different countries. I thought it was very much a good way to a stepping stone to do something different, to get into business. Because I don't think I ever saw myself as a non-conversier for a big company. It was not me, really. But that gave me the opportunity to work for big firms like KPMG and Coopers in Audit, M&A, and to travel the world in countries where you normally would not go. Yes, I can imagine. So, you know, in the 90s, I traveled in China, in Russia, the eastern 
blog which was just coming out of uh, the communist rule and in Africa. So I had the opportunity to see what was out there, a much different world. And I think that certainly helped me to understand and see the, the needs as well as uh, when I came into uh, the world of remittances, even before we remit. And how did you get into that world? Actually, it's, it's funny because it was by chance. In the early 2000, an ex-KPMG partner friend of mine was running a company which included a, a small division of uh, forex bureaus, but also this nascent kind of uh, remittance business. And he was struggling a bit, and he asked me, you know, could I come and help? And I found myself in uh, this role, uh, first as an FD, and taking over, in fact, the business and helping them to sell it to what was then... Uh, Travel X money transfer and then moved on. So that at that time it was the what I would call the old-fashioned offline traditional money remittance where you had to go to a shop to send money and we had you know a network agent. So that was my first foray into what we call remittances and learn about the market, the reason for the remittances. And it's a kind of a sector which when you get involved is you, you get, you know, quite passionate about it because of what remittances are about. Exactly. You know, well, if if I just mention maybe explain what remittance is about, because maybe some people don't quite understand yeah, what the terminology do. it's obviously you know cross border payment, but it's very much targeted at people who have moved away from their home country to work, so in Europe, US, Canada, and other countries, and have a need to send monthly money back to their family, friends, and for you know basic support, but also for education and yeah. uh, health and, and so on, and help with small businesses. So very important, and the value of uh, remittance is about $600 billion a year, so you can imagine how big that yes. is. And the impact it has is incredible because in some countries it counts for 5 to 10% of the GDP. Yeah. It's a, a lifeline. It is, yeah. And actually, 2019, I was reading the other day, remittances overtook foreign direct investment yeah. as the biggest inflow of foreign yeah. capital. And not only that, but the level of remittances are actually three times the global aid, which are given by government to uh, emerging economies. So not only is it caused the foreign direct investment, it's three times more than global aid. That's fascinating. And as we were saying, it's the lifeline for many emerging markets. What are some of the, your biggest markets at World Remit? Um, what are the key innovations you're seeing there? What are the trends? Yeah. So, you know, maybe one step back in terms of what World Remit is about. You know, as I said, I was in the, the, what I call the traditional money remittance, which was using an agent network offline, all in cash. And, you know, back in 2010, when I met my co-founder Ismail, we knew that it was time to move on. We often described it like a bit like the travel industry. You know, years ago, you would go to a travel agent shop to buy a hair ticket. Yeah. Well, now you yeah. don't. Yeah. <laughs> and we said, well, you know, why do people need to go to a shop to send money to their family when they can do it online? So we wanted very much to use technology to transform this industry to make it safer, cheaper, more convenient and cheaper by using technology so we could you know, use the processes and have a lower cost and therefore pass those savings to the customers. Because up to now, it was really dominated by a couple of players and yes. therefore a bit of a monopoly and prices were very high. So expensive. Yeah. But so we wanted to bring technology on the, what we call the send side, to so hope to help people on the send side to send their money. But we also saw very quickly that technology was changing also in the receive country and especially in Africa, 
with the advent of mobile and mobile technology and mobile wallet. Yeah. So, you know, we saw, well, if someone, you know, has a mobile money and has a mobile wallet, i.e. associated, a virtual account associated with their mobile, and we're talking at this stage, back in 2012, mainly those basic Nokia phone we used to have, yeah. not the smartphone. We said, why, why can't we send that directly to those mobile wallets so people don't have to travel, you know, sometimes quite long distances to the next town to collect cash when it's much safer to receive that money on their mobile. So we moved very quickly at that time. We saw the opportunity and contacted all the mobile operators so we could send money directly into a mobile. So, you know, you had suddenly these uh, payments going you know, from mobile to mobile, instant. Incredible. And especially as a South African living and working in London, I also have to send money home. And up until I was introduced to World Remit, there wasn't an easy and cheap way of doing so. It speaks very loudly to me. And moving back, you said Africa is one of your key... So Africa definitely, uh, you know, in view that my co-founder is also African, we, oh, we have uh, obviously, uh, and as I said, especially with the technology of mobile, we saw the, the big opportunity there and certainly uh, that happened. Obviously, you know, kind of remittances are, you know, the big corridors, obviously, it's Africa, Far East, you know, like the Philippines, India, and then obviously South America. So Philippines, again, is another key corridor for us and India. But, you know, now that we've got all our licenses in the U.S., the South America corridors are growing. 50 licenses, it took oh, us three and a half years to do that. I can imagine. So obviously the, the flow now are growing now that we've, uh, since uh, you know last year, we've got our 50 licenses. On that, we've talked a bit about innovation and obviously World Remit is based in the UK, but I'm interested to hear what is happening in emerging markets. What are the innovations you are seeing there? Yeah. It's a very exciting area. I do a lot of work in Africa, but obviously I've seen it in Asia, but especially in Africa the level of uh, new technology and uh, businesses which are being created there to resolve lots of problems is incredible. So just to give you an idea, you know, if you think of Africa, there's 60% of the population is under 25. So, you know, they by, by nature, they are going to adopt, you know, technology. A lot of people now have smartphones, not the expensive one because, you know, they can't afford it, but they have the $20 one which comes from China or India. And they can access some data. So you can see now young people wanted to resolve problems because they have this resource and setting up business. And it's really buoyant. There's now, I saw an article last week that there's 643 hubs in Africa. Wow. A lot in West Africa, uh, East Africa and South Africa as well. And it just shows, you know, the need because the technology can resolve so many needs. You know, there's a growing population of middle class and they want access to those products that yeah. we have, the services, and therefore they need to develop local products, local solutions to meet, you know, the need that people don't have bank account, but they have a mobile. So each time I've been traveling in Africa, I tend to try to look for the the local yeah. hub to see yeah. what's happening. And it's really exciting. What it's, really Latin, and it's really exciting. And... Uh, But the one thing, they're just so underfunded because for the moment, uh, you know, just the UK, the investment in the UK in in tech business was uh, about $2 billion in the first half of this year, 2019. In Africa last year, it was $357 million in fintech. You can see the globe. And and to be honest, so what I do now when I talk to VCs, when I meet, when I network, I meet VCs, I say, 
what do you do in Africa? And generally, it's nothing or not yes, much. Yes, especially London-based VCs. Yeah, and or you know European VCs yes. or even US. And I say you're going to miss the boat. You know, think yeah. about it because you are going to miss the boat because there's so many you know good ideas from business, and we've seen some good results. You know, there's a company called Flutterwave, which is a, a payments platform, and then and, and went to IPO, and uh, there's Jumia, Carver, yes, an e-commerce platform and everything. So we can see that it can be done, and they, you know, they were invested on, and there's so many opportunities. And I think, you know, VCs are very short-sighted to me if they don't look at those, uh, the emerging economies for, for investing, because there's a lot of opportunities there. Wow, very, very interesting. And especially as an African myself, I'm fully behind the Africa opportunity. And um, I completely agree. So that's another call to action for the VC. That's it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Did you know Motive Partners has a weekly newsletter? It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. And what have been your biggest milestones along your World Remit journey? I'm sure as an entrepreneur, you've had a number of challenges as well. I read, I think the most recent stat is 4 million people globally use World Remit. Yeah, it is a big market, but it was very dominated by players with, you know, exclusive arrangements, which made it difficult to enter in terms of getting that network, because obviously we rely on network of partners in those receive countries to pay out. So if they are on the exclusive arrangement, that was certainly a kind of a challenging. Fortunately, a lot of countries decided that in order to make it more competitive, those exclusive arrangements became illegal. But you know, commercially, there they would have been a challenge. So initially, it is to build that network. Unfortunately, because I'd worked in the remittance sector before, I had a lot of contacts, so that made it obviously a lot easier to build and people knew me, trust, because it's about, a lot about trust when you're working Absolutely. in those countries, so that helped. I think the milestone for us is when we could see that the model was working. You know, we launched in Europe and we got our, we passported our license all over Europe. And then we could see the volumes growing that, you know, we knew that the model was working. So then it was to get, you know, further investment to take us to be able to, you know, grow globally because, uh, you know, as I described, for example, the US, three and a half years to get 50 license requires a fair amount of money. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so uh, that's when we got Series A. And I think for me, Series A was a big milestone for us for various reasons. Obviously, we had uh, an excellent VC, Axel. I think as a founding team, we were very proud to have been able to attract such a... But also, it helped us a lot to raise our profile and status because, you know, we're talking of financial services. You're talking of, you know, working with big banks and so on. So having a VC like Axel behind us straight away can't make people think they must be doing something wrong because we know Axel would have done a lot of due diligence work on them and therefore that really opened doors and you know we found that people were a lot more willing to talk to us. It was Uh, a big stamp of belief. So hearing you speak Catherine I know financial inclusion plays a big role in how you operate, how World Remit operates as a business. It's a huge global challenge and you are tackling it head on. Tell us how you're doing that. That's an area which I'm very passionate because obviously to bring people access to financial services is very important for the development of both developed and emerging economies. And what we found actually when I was describing, you know, the the solution of mobile money, the impact it had on financial inclusion because 
before people were receiving cash and therefore it was staying yeah. outside the you know economic system and they, they couldn't really access many much more than just that cash as soon as uh, they were able to receive money in a mobile wallet then new services have appeared so they could you know have access to saving to micro loan they certainly built a credit history and access to other services empowering people where before had no way they would access financial services ever because the banks were not really managing to target or focus on this uh, very low income people but the other side as well is what is done to women because what we saw very quickly is that the traditional way of sending money when it was expensive and slow, often the person would send money to maybe the head of the family, and then that was then distributed over you know, a few relatives. And women generally were the worse off because sometimes they would take a cut, and therefore what was left uh, was a lot less than they needed. The advent of having a mobile, there's 1.7 billion people who are unbanked, but over 1 billion have got a mobile, meant that a lot of women had a mobile and therefore were able to create a mobile account and receive money directly. So what we saw is the pattern of transaction change from the beginning when we started at first to when we introduced mobile money, where people were sending to more recipients because they were able to send the money directly to each person because we were having low fees and the flexibility of mobile money. And therefore, we saw more and more women having access to, to mobile money and therefore having access to uh, financial services. I think that's a good lead into my next question. We also wanted to talk today about diversity and inclusion. And I know that's a topic that is very near and dear to you. When we talk about that, what does that actually mean to you? What is the role women are playing in society? How is that increasing? And why is this topic so close to your heart? Well, obviously, I'm a woman and yes, I've, faced, <laughs> I, I, I've faced discrimination. You know, I'm yes. uh, somewhat older than you. And, uh, you know, my first boss told me that he didn't think women made good accountants. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I didn't stay there very long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have faced discrimination. Working in financial services, I've faced discrimination yes. most of my life. And therefore, for me, it's important that things change. Things have changed. There's no doubt about it compared to what it was when I was very young. But it has not changed as much as I would have liked, you know, to kind of see now when I hear, you know, still stories from young women about the challenges they face at work. You know, after all, the population is not quite 50-50, but it's more or less 50-50. The consumers are 50-50. And a lot of things are done by men for women and, you know, don't always meet those needs. And there's now a lot of uh, studies, research done, she shows that diversity actually makes things better. You know, the McKinsey report uh, last year did show that, you know, companies which have a you know, diverse executive team do better. They are you know, more profitable, exactly. they are more efficient. So there's obviously a benefit for that. And it's just we need to change people's mind. You know, it's changing, you know, mindset, I think, is, you know, a lot of perception that there's, uh, when I hear in London, there's not enough tech uh, female. And I say, my God, I don't know where you're going, because yeah. I see them every day, <laughs> you know, so you're obviously not looking very far. And I think it's a mindset, it's changing the approach. So if you're recruiting simple things, like telling your recruiters, don't find me you know, 10 CVs of men, you know, and maybe one a woman and nine men and one woman, because the chance is that that woman is the right one, probably low. But, you know, do look and work a bit harder because they are there. But, you know, it's 
people often take the easy route and therefore they will only look for, you know, the, that pool which they've already got to find, you know, a certain role when in fact there's a pool there of very talented people. It's encouraging people to go forward and to believe in, in mentoring, but sponsoring, which is quite uh, different. You know, obviously mentor is people to come help you with your career, your thoughts. And I think sponsoring, which should be within company, you know, you should always look for someone who is going to sponsor you, i.e., you know, be your brand ambassador. Yes. And that often will be a man, but it doesn't matter because there's plenty of good men around yeah, as well. At least there's someone pulling you that, up. That's it. Yeah. And I think that's very important because, you know, that's often the way that you will be able to progress within the company. So finding a sponsor early on is very important, you know, having a mentor, probably outside, I would generally recommend outside the organization because then you can talk a bit more sensitive matters. You might not yes. want to talk to a colleague. But it's got to be both a top-down and down-up approach. Yes, governments and companies have got things to do. I think, for example, the gender pay gap report had some very good positive uh, objective because companies suddenly saw figures which maybe they didn't quite realize were as bad. And even you know, at World Remit, we have a good diversity in terms of numbers. But because we have a big engineering team and we still have in London male-dominated, our gap report is not that great yeah. because of that. Yeah. But at least you have the figures exactly. which people didn't have before. Personally, I would like every company to produce this report. For the moment, it's only companies over 250. And I think if every company did it, you know, that would really come make them think at a very early stage what they've got to do to introduce, you know, I see a lot of startups, great startups, but still very much, you know, white male. Okay. And I say, I often say today, have you seen your picture? <laughs> you see, there's something missing there. Yeah. <laughs> we have a little laugh about it, but you know, they start thinking, yes, it's true. We, we need to go and work on that. And you need to work it very early on, I think. Yeah. But I say bottom up as well as women, we have a role. We have to help each other. There's so many things that you can do in encouraging your colleagues at work, but also outside work. Go to school, tell the girls that they've got to do math. Uh, Sherry Kutu, I'm sure you yes, know, of, has She's got been... this Mass for Girls project where, you know, she wants young women to go and talk to uh, school girls who are not doing mass level. They're giving up mass at uh, GCSE level because they think other oh, mass is boring or it's for boys. We need to change that attitude. But, you know, this is a, a society thing. I think it's got to change at home. I did my own little research with a lot of successful women asking them what was their background at home. And generally, it was because both their parents, but also their father, were very encouraging from day one. You know, they didn't assume they would be going into the creative or whatever. From day one, they thought, you know, they could do anything they wanted. That makes a big difference. And I think at school, we've got to continue that. And obviously, at work, we can do more by uh, helping. Personally, I'm not very much a one to impose quotas. I don't think they always work, you know. Yes, in um, Europe, a lot of countries impose quotas on boards, but you find, yes, you can have more women on board. It's easy to find a couple of women on boards, but are they really effective? Are they really considered? And is it changing the culture below? I'm afraid in some countries, I don't think it is. So I think it's got to be really much more, kind of, say, bottom-up and top up. Yes, I love that. And previously, you said that you mentor a number of rising women. What are the actual challenges that they are facing in the workplace from a diversity perspective? And 
you know, you've mentioned a few examples, for example, board representation, but how do we move the dial in a way that is truly meaningful? I mean, the World Economic Forum estimates that if we go on the current trend to reach gender equality, it will take 208 years in the US, yes, in the US. And the world average is still 108 years. And I mean, I don't think my children's children's children yeah. will see gender equality. Yeah, it's a bit frightening, though, I'd have to say, after 2,000 years of <laughs> discrimination, yeah. 108 years doesn't sound too long. Yes, but you're uh, right, you're but right. But I think, yes, you know, because it's changing minds, and changing minds always take time. But I think the speed uh, certainly is increasing. And as I said, we have a role, every one of us has a role to play. And I think that's, you know, it's my call to action. When I go to, as you know, I speak to a lot of conference or panels and everything. Yeah, and sometimes I, I have known that I've been inviting because I'm a woman. But this oh. is going to be a platform yeah. for me to represent and also, you know, encourage women. That's worth it. You know, if I get one woman who's come to come, to come out of this meeting, or even one man who's going to think differently when he comes out of this meeting, then it's worth it. I completely agree with you. You're an inspiring champion for not only women, but for a number of underrepresented groups. You mentor female leaders, people in fintech. You've also done a lot of work with beam.org to support homeless people. Tell us about this work. It must be so fulfilling for you. Give us a bit more color on that. As a person, I'm very much a people's person. I, you know, I've always wanted to, to help people. That's, uh, you know, called my personality. But uh, I'm very excited these days about what technology can do to help people. There's so many things that uh, technology can solve, help resolve, and therefore some problems would before you thought, you know, it had to be done by charities only, and that's not true. And Beam is a, a prime example of that, where this is a crowdfunding platform which takes homeless people through training back into stable work. Very simple concept, in a way. We're not talking of mind-blowing technology, but it works, and we've proved the model over the last two years, and now we are working more and more with uh, councils and uh, organizations which have to deliver solutions for the homeless people in their jurisdiction, and it is working. And the thing is, the co-founder, sorry, the founder, Alex Stefani, knows very well that it can be applied in other areas of, uh, of you know, social services, which is very yeah. scalable. And so it's very exciting. And as I said, you can see that in a number of ways, what technology can do in a lot of organizations, you know, how we can help you know, disabled people in various ways. What ways in particular? I've seen, you know, application for blind people, so they have certain glasses, which means with the app they can, you know, be guided, uh, you know, through the street, you know, you don't need a guide dog anymore, and, uh, and, you know, you can interact much more easily with people, you know, equipment as well in terms of... Uh, chairs or cycles or whatever. So the, the technology has come there. Yeah. And then sometimes some of the applications are not very complicated, but you know, the, the technology is there to has made it uh, much easier. It makes me feel very hopeful about our future from a gender equality perspective, but also from an inclusion perspective of mm-hmm. underrepresented, disabled, um, the whole sphere. Mm-hmm. It's very exciting. And I think we're in a good industry. Yeah. Yeah. You also do a lot of work with Cambridge Judge Business School, and you've, you've obviously been a mentor there and a supporter of a number of startups. 
especially in the fintech spaces, you know it back to front. And tell us about your role there. Well, I came to, uh, they were developing a module on fintech and uh, therefore they wanted people from the industry rather than academic. As I said, you know, I'm not an academic at all. You know, <laughs> I'm a practical person. So I got involved uh, in that module and, uh, you know, helping, uh, doing some presentation, getting speakers and obviously, uh, you know, mentoring some people who might be interested. And uh, I might be uh, a bit older, but I still feel sick I'm young. <laughs> but that's how it should always be. And uh, I do like working with the younger generation, and especially because I think I've seen changes about collaboration. And I call myself a connector because I, I network so much. I know so many people. It's rare that when I meet someone and I can't introduce them to someone else. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. I mean, we have covered some fantastic content now. I'd like to get a little bit more personal here. I read your recent article in the Financial Times about your battle with cancer which, I mean, I was left feeling incredibly inspired. Looking at you today, you're full of energy and you are absolutely beating it. But I, I can imagine the journey has been tough. That article was a lot about demystifying cancer, especially in the workplace and, and speaking about it. But tell us a bit about that. Yes, I was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer just about a year ago. And obviously it was a big shock for me because I can you know, I've uh, been quite a healthy person all my life. So it was... Uh, a bit of a, a roller coaster at first, but it also it was a very much an eye opener. I know that you know uh, I've done a lot of uh, charity runs for cancer research in the past because I'm a runner. But uh, when you get cancer, you suddenly realise that one in two person in the UK is going to have cancer. Wow! And so it's, oh it's an gosh. epidemic, you know. Yeah. And I was also surprised at people's reaction when I was telling them. You know, it varied quite a lot, but. There's still, uh, you know, a bit of a taboo about cancer, you know, oh, I've got cancer, I'm going to die. Well, no, you're not automatically going to die because advances have, uh, you know, uh, in research and uh, medicine are incredible. And even the treatment today is not the one which was 10 years ago. You know, I think, yeah, probably 10 years ago, you might have to stay at home because you, the medicine was so tough on you. And I'm not saying they're not tough because they are. Yeah. But you can, you know, they give you lots of things to kind of manage it. So we've got to remove this taboo with saying, oh, well, cancer and afraid to talk about it. Because I think in some area that means people might not deal with their symptoms when early on because they're afraid. So there's one thing there. But also at the workplace is uh, to accept people who have cancer and how we are going to support them. Because a lot of people, everybody is different, a lot of people want to try to lead as normal life as possible, even with a cancer. And you can, you know, I'm not saying that you can in every single circumstances, but in most cases you can. But you need to adapt. And if your employee can adapt, you know, with technology these days, it's so much easier to spend a bit of time at home, you know, working on email conference call or whatever. So you can still be quite productive and effective. And that helps both sides because from, you know, the, the patient, the sufferer point of view, it keeps you positive, you know, it keeps you involved. And from the employer point of view, it means that you don't lose a resource, which could be very expensive to replace or to cover and, and keep that resource. So I think we need to think a lot more as employers because it's going to affect, you know, if you think about it, when I stand in the office and I look at the workforce and I say 50% of you are going to be affected, you know, as I said, it's a very personal thing. So I think it's important for managers to understand that and talk to the, the people who are suffering from cancer and say, well, 
how do you want to communicate this? Do you want to talk about it? How can we support you in, yeah. in your day to day? I think it benefits both sides and we have to because otherwise, what are we going to do? Have 50% of the population in bed at home? Yeah, no. no, we can't do that. Can't do yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. This, is, this has been amazing for me. You are an utmost power woman I've ever met and it's really been an inspiring chat and I'm sure our listeners will love it as much as I did. So what is your final liner? Well, as I said, you know, in terms of uh, the gender issue, I think, I think, please, all the women listening, please, you know, think of what you can do. And it doesn't have to be big things, you know. Yes, I've been successful at Warrior but at the same time, I have modest background, you know. Uh, you can do small things, and it's those small things which counts a lot. So don't be afraid to do and just look around. That one little thing can help, and if it multiplies, then we will resolve big problems. Well, I'm taking that lesson with me today. Thank you, Catherine. It's been incredible to talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.